Let the red dawn surmise what we shall do when this blue starlight dies and all is through. Hello, everyone. I haven't done a podcast in such a long time. Uh, not since November 2021. What I've done, I've made that little. I made that little, little Woden video. Um, I made the little Ancient Order of Albion video. I guess I made a Batman review as well, but I haven't really done like a fully fledged podcast in ages. Um, uh, I think a lot of my past podcasts have been really were really sort of self indulgent and sort of rambling. Um, so I'm going to try and avoid that in this one. Um, because listening back to my old ones, I just I th- I just think what a pretentious idiot who's who I would actually enjoy listening to this. Uh, the reason I continued with my podcast is because you know people did say that they enjoyed it. So to those people, uh, I just want to say thank you because I, I listening to myself. I mean, I couldn't. I, I don't know. <laughs> I I you know I I I cringed when I heard myself. So to know that there are people out there who actually enjoyed my old podcasts. Um, you must have a lot of lot more patience than I have. So I have many titles. Most of you know me as just Revo. Others know me as Dominic Cranis. Um But I'm known by many names. I'm known as Dr. Revo, Doc Revo, Count Revo, Lord Revo, Revo Lacroix, The Black Crane of the Fens, Ra Solomon, Charles Laurel, The Druid of Caregroth, The Wizard of the English, I'm known by many titles and many epithets across the world, and many of these might sound confusing to you. For example, Count Revo, Lord Revo. These may sound very pretentious, but in actual fact, I can reveal in this podcast that I was once the Count of a realm which existed on a distant star. This realm was called Domanglia, and it was a most resplendent place, a most glorious civilization, but unfortunately, in a tragic revolution. It was overthrown and destroyed, and I was reincarnated here as an Englishman in the early 21st century, um, but I remain the Count of Demanglia, of lost Demanglia across the stars. And not many people know that, so I thought I'd make it clear in this podcast. This is why I so often feel out of place in this world, on, on this planet, because I am from a distant from a distant world, from a lost civilization that was destroyed tragically in a revolution, and I was overthrown and reincarnated here. Um, but that's why that's why I, I so often feel otherworldly and out of place. Um, but yes, I am the Count of Demanglia. I am Revo. I am Ra Solomon. I am the Great Druid of Caregroth and Wizard of the English. And in this podcast, I would like to talk about firstly uh, Rishi Sunak. <laughs> Uh, I've I've taken great joy in uh, his sort of fall from fall from grace. I think it's really abhorrent that the powers that be uh, try to force this sort of high caste, this sort of Brahmin, sort of Indian C- CEO. You know, they wanted this guy to be like the CEO of UK Corp. You know, uh, he wasn't even he wasn't he, he wasn't in, in no way assimilated into Britain whatsoever. He was proud of his American links. His wife. Uh, had had non-domicile status. These these this is these were unassimilated. These were not Britons. Even Benjamin Disraeli, who was of uh, Sephardi Jewish descent, I, I often reference him as like an ideal example of what I mean by a assimilated uh, immigrant. Um, he was he, he you know he converted to Christianity. Uh, he was 
he identified as British. I mean, he still had some, uh, you know, so affiliation with his Jewish uh, heritage. But Rishi Sunak, if he had become prime minister, like they were really setting him up to do, he was just, he's just an alien. He's just not one of us. He's not one of our nation. He never assimilated. He still was very proud of his American links. He was just this foreign alien banker, this Indian middle manager that they wanted to force on wanted to govern our nation this was this is a cologne this is a colonial figure and i'm so glad that because of the non-domicile status of his wife he's finally being brought down um because it really would have been an insult to the english people if he was made prime minister of great britain of this great country um so i'm glad that he's being brought down it's not because he's a uh, it's not it's not directly because he's an uh He's an unassimilated immigrant that he's being brought down. It's because his wife is using her non-domicile status to, you know, be exempt from taxation. And so the media are very pro-taxation, so that's why. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's interlinked. This is, she, she, the only reason she has this non-domicile status is because she is an unassimilated immigrant and she can get, get away with it. Um, and Rishi Sunak had, like, a green card, I think, up until, like, a year or so ago. Um an American green card, and he was very proud of it, apparently used to boast about it. This guy was not a part of our nation. This was just some guy. And I've got nothing against India or Indians, obviously, but it's just, I just find, find it so insulting that they tried, that the, the, they tried so strongly to foist this colonial overlord on us. White people are getting forced, at, are getting replaced in as, um, as the middle managers of uh, Globo Homo by in by uh you know high caste indians high caste uh nigerians uh probably because uh they're more compliant that just like how women replaced men in the workforce they're more compliant they're more um easy to handle compared to white people and so it's that these are the these are the new uh middle managers of the global the global order the global regime um so globalism isn't going to benefit white people for much longer not that it does but there's you know there's middle class white people whom it seems to benefit at the moment but sooner or later they, they will be forced out and replaced by these high caste indians uh, like the new ceo of twitter and people like rishi sunak who they wanted to make the ceo of britain in a very similar way um the global order has found sort of new new middle managers um the chinese as well asians are serving a very similar function um, so anyway, that's all. I, I've, I'm celebrating the downfall of Rishi Sunak. I don't think it's very likely he'll be prime minister now. God forbid. Um, but what an insult to us. What a huge insult that they tried to force this colonial overlord onto us. Britain is a colonised country. It's been colonised by the the American Empire, the global order, whatever you want to call it. This international capitalist system that is parasitizing us and has turned us into a mere offshore colony of America. We, what does it say about us? All our sovereignty has been taken from us. That we, that they, the, the our nation, the nation that once conquered the world, can now be have is now being is now is now the powers that be can without this it, the consent of the British people really because nobody really cares about Rishi Sunak. They only did because the media told them to. They were going to place this colonial overlord in charge of our of our fair nation. I just find it really sickening and.
I'm glad he's been brought down. I think we'll have our our first music selection after that little that little rant. I want to make my podcast more uh, uh, more uh, you know less uh, flappy like it was last time, less uh, self indulgent, um, slightly more entertaining. Uh, all the music that I'll source in this podcast uh, will either be in the public domain uh, or royalty free in Great Britain or in its country of origin. So if YouTube are listening to this or uh, Spotify listening to this, get off my back. <laughs> get off my back. And if, if you don't want to listen to the music, if you're listening to this at home, feel free to skip it because my taste in music is quite old-fashioned. Um, but please enjoy our first piece. <laughs> the uh, issue that's dominated uh, the news for the past month and when I say dominated the news I mean it's really it's really terrible how older people especially they've always got themselves plugged into the radio or watching the television it really is quite dystopian like we say the internet is dystopian all the time but at least the internet gives you freedom of what sort of information to consume and what sort of media to consume 
boomers they just live in this world of constant uh media blitz from the television from the radio and to some extent they've outsourced their rationality to it and they've learned to believe pretty much everything it says it's really quite uh orwellian and i mean warwell was writing when you know the radio he was writing just as we were entering this sort of mass media age with you know the radio and whatnot and telescreens um and so you can it's it's very 20th century late 20th century this kind of it might be remembered as the the era of television you know the age of television but just before television was replaced by the internet um but i find television in some respects more dystopian than the internet in that it, it doesn't give you much choice and boomers have grown up with like only four channels they've learned they haven't had much choice they've they haven't had sort of uh until recently you couldn't get tv channels from outside the country and even then few people still do you know um so they've they've learned to trust the tv and trust the radio um and so the, i've seen like older relatives they just get sucked into uh, sucked into the news and they have it on all the time and it's really grim like same thing happened with covid covid was just a uh, this sort of cycle this sort of media cycle the media would hype up covid and then people would get frightened about it and then the tories would have to do something about it and it just become this endless cycle of ever more draconian measures hyped up by the media um and it's been the same with this war like i try to explain to family members like it's it's more nuanced than the media are showing you like on sky news yesterday I think it was yesterday or the day before. They <laughs> Sky News were just uncritically interviewing this member of Azov Battalion. They didn't. They didn't even mention Azov's Nazi affiliations. They were just uncritically interviewing this guy like he was just a, you know, normal Ukrainian patriot. Um, it's and I I had to explain like this is ridiculous. I have to be the one to explain like it's more nuanced than the news tells you. So the news is just, it's, I mean, it's impossible for me to take the blue pill nowadays because the news has just become so ridiculous. It's become so ridiculously, ridiculously biased. It's just impossible for me to uh, go back into the matrix, as it were. Um, so, so it's, yeah, that's that's been driving up uh, most, it's been driving up boomers into a war frenzy, into, into this frenzy for nuclear war, you know, um, with... It's 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 been really quite uh, scary. Um, I've it's made me much more pacifistic because um, I've I've realised you know I actually quite enjoy my day to day life and I don't really want it to be blitzed by this nuclear war we rush into because boomers have been completely taken over by the media um, and they've just become media drones. Um, it's it's been awful watching this war frenzy. Um, yeah, it's made me a lot more pacifistic, you know, I don't want, I enjoy my life, I enjoy the comforts of the 21st century, and I don't really want to live in this sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland. It's really made me despise a lot of elements of the right, actually, I think, I think a lot of the right is driven by this sort of misanthropic bitterness, and you see people, I've seen people on, like, right-wing Twitter who are sort of, sort of celebrating the coming, you know, you can tell they kind of really they they relish the black pills like they really relish uh the thought of like nuclear armageddon on some level they may not say it explicitly but on some level they kind of relish it and they relish war and i've i've it's made me very 
dismayed by them really i've i've been quite disgusted I, I i don't know what's happened to the like the dissident right since like 2017 but at some point it, i think it absorbed the incel movement and that's just been such a that's been that's been awful that's been such uh terrible that that's been it's been terrible and the right has become so anarchy as a result anarchy and misanthropic um and so i've been so i've been growing more pacifistic um obviously you know war is preferable to uh to a bad peace um you know especially with the modern west like i don't think the modern west is like the perfect example of a bad peace you know we're aborting massacring babies in order to keep our culture of casual sex and promiscuity afloat um we have factory farming animals are slaughtered in the most inhumane of conditions in order to keep uh in order to you know to keep up this this rotten society um so th this is this is a bad piece um so i'm not i'm not a quaker or anything like that but i certainly do appreciate peace a lot more especially in an age of uh, nuclear weapons and i appreciate when things go right like when John Peterson's always talking about how you know it's it's a miracle that society even functions to begin with um but yeah as for the war again it's been like a month it's been going on for a month um and again Twitter's been quite awful with it because I think the initial response of the sort of the dissident right was simply um it's sort of the same as the Afghanistan the fall of Afghanistan it was we don't necessarily like the Taliban or the Russians. In fact, we can probably quite... If we lived in those societies, we'd probably be, you know, very critical of them. Um, but, you know, that's not of no interest to us, really. We're not living in Afghanistan and we're not living in Russia as dissidents who are persecuted by Western regimes on a regular basis. You know, 14-year-olds are being turned into political prisoners uh, just for hosting sort of edgy discord chats you know there there there's really no freedom of speech in the west anymore there's no uh, freedom of political affiliation and it's getting worse and worse so while we are dissidents in in the west the west western governments are are our enemies they the western governments are repressing us and they're trying to replace the native peoples of europe uh with uh demographic warfare um so make no mistake western governments the governments of western states no longer represent the interests of the indigenous nations of those states so that western governments are our enemies we're not living in russia we're not living in afghanistan so really our only interest in this conflict is we hate the west whatever uh whatever embarrasses or humiliates the west whatever whoever's fighting the enemy of my enemy is my friend basically um well, not even friend, like, it's just, we're just celebrating another humiliation for the Western order. Um, we're, we're celebrating another defeat for NATO. Um, and so that, that I think that's the, the initial gut reaction of the dissident right to this conflict was a sort of tacit support for Russia. Not necessarily celebrating Russia, because Russia's a very decadent society as well. It's got massive abortion rates. Um, same with the Taliban, like, um, even conservative uh factions in the dissident right i don't think they i don't think even they would want to live under the taliban you know it's very if it's a very staunch fundamentalist society and um, which is very alien to sort of western tastes um 
but even so we're just celebrating a defeat for the west um you know a a a crack in a crack in the walls of babylon as it were um and so i think that's that was the dissident rights initial sort of intuitive gut reaction and i think that was the correct one uh, and since then in spaces like twitter it's just it's just been one contrarian take after the other it's been people it's been right wingers supporting ukraine then people reacting against that and supporting Russia again, then people reacting against that and supporting Ukraine. Um, so it's just been some uh, this vain contrarian cycle, really. Um, and so it's, it's become very tiresome. I've, I've really got sick of, dis, you know, right-wing Twitter or political Twitter, you know, or Anglo Twitter. Um, and I've just muted everyone and I'm going to use it a lot less in the future. Um, but yeah, it's just been this vain contrarian cycle like the, the the there are pro the pro ukrainian there are pro ukrainian uh dissident rightists um but the, their arguments kind of either they have like a natural sympathy for the for the uh sort of the nationalist struggle of ukrainians or they uh, which are which i sympathize with you know i sympathize with that's i think that's valid um but there are also those who sort of say well you know, it's a war between Europe and Russia, you know, we want Ukraine to be a part of Europe. You know, are you pro-European or not? And I think that's very flawed. It's not a war between Europe and Russia. It's a, war be- it's a proxy war between America and Russia. The European Union, as it currently stands, doesn't really represent Europe's interests or the, the interests of the indigenous peoples of Europe. No, no, no Western government currently represents the interests of the indigenous nations of Europe. That's what I'm saying. That's why these governments are our enemies. That's why the West, uh, per se, is our enemy, um, for as long as it does not represent the interests of its own people, for as long as it represents the interests of paedophilic parasites, uh, like uh, those who finance Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. And by the way, what happened with that? Like, Maxwell was... Jeffrey Epstein killed himself in suspicious circumstances, and then Ghislaine is imprisoned. But where's the witch hunt? Like... Why aren't we looking for the people who, who paid them? They were they were just arrangers for a much bigger fish, and there's been no witch hunt whatsoever. And it's because you know the people who paid them are the most powerful people in the media and government in Western society. But anyway, yeah, I can, I can, I can understand like a nationalist sympathy, like for the Ukrainians fighting for their homeland, um, but not so much like supporting NATO. Like NATO's not our friend. The EU isn't our friend. America certainly isn't our friend. Um, none of these things are... N- all these things serve the interests of a very s- small parasitic elite in the West and not the people of the West itself. Um, so, I, you know, we've got, I don't think we've got any stake in this in NATO whatsoever. I think NATO should have been disbanded after the Cold War. Um, it, served no, it served no purpose after the Cold War, um, but instead... Uh, and it, because of the military-industrial complex in part, and also because um, Russia, this is this is really what it comes down to. Um, Pute, the Western elites, the globalist elites, wanted to ransack Russia's vast, rich resources for everything they had. Uh, but Putin put a stop to the oligarchy. He restrained the oligarchy, um, and as a result, the Western elites. Uh, haven't been able to, you know, haven't been able to get their greedy hands on Russia. 
Um, so as a result, we started going back to treating Russia as an enemy. And that's just where this Cold War, this new Cold War comes from. It's just greed on the part of our elites. It's got no benefit to us whatsoever uh, or to the Russian people. Um, Putin, I think Putin restraining the oligarchy was a good thing for Russia. You know, the West is more of an oligarchy than Russia is. Like, Putin is in charge of his oligarchs. In here, it's vice versa. Our oligarchs are in charge of people like Rishi Sunak, which they try and put in Downing Street. They're in charge of sort of frail, elderly, demented puppets like Joe Biden. Um, so this war doesn't, this new Cold War doesn't serve us whatsoever. The the Western elites, and I think BAP, uh, BAP made a very good episode about this where he explained it much better than I could. It's one of his early ones. If you just look for the word uh, oligarchy, you'll find the, the BAP episode about this. Um, but basically, yeah, the Western elites couldn't get, with, couldn't get their greedy hands on Russia's resources after Putin restrained uh, the oligarchy. And so as a result, we entered this new Cold War um, and that, so we've had all this NATO, NATO's remained, even, you know, even though the Soviet Union's collapsed, NATO remained, and it's even expanded eastwards. So it's this anti-Russia club, basically, this anti-Russian alliance, and it's been expanding ever closer onto Russia's turf, on, onto Russia's, you know, natural hegemony and sphere of influence. And, like, it's, the Baltic countries are part of NATO, like, there are NATO bases, within miles of St. Petersburg. That's absolutely ridiculous. And if I was Russia, I would feel pretty... I would feel pretty, uh, you know, I'd feel pretty uh, alarmed that this anti-Russia club was encroaching ever further onto my borders, um, especially in the Baltics, like, and so it was gonna, it was gonna... There's only so far you can provoke the Russian bear before he'll fight back. Um, and so Ukraine, we, we, you know, we deposed the democratically elected government of Ukraine in 2014. A lot of shady stuff went down with the Euromaiden protests, a lot of shady CIA stuff going on there. Um, so we tried to, we've been trying to turn Ukraine to NATO for ages now. And finally, uh, Putin has struck back. So I, I, so th that's the nuance basically. And that's what I've been trying to explain to people. Like this is as much Western aggression as it is Russian. Um, and obviously, like, the Ukrainian people are kind of stuck as a kind of... a, a kind of... Uh, a puppet in all this. They're the ones who are really suffering, because they're just being... This, they're this ball that's being tossed between America and Russia. It's it's really regrettable. Um, but that's that's the nuance, basically. And, you know, I, I empathise within... within U Ukrainian nationalists... Ukrainian nationalists who genuinely believe themselves to be a nation who want, you know, who deserve their own nation-state. I don't know if Ukraine's going to have its sovereignty denied to it in the end when this is all over. I mean, we'll wait and see, but it probably will just become like a pro-Russian state. It'll probably be... Russia will probably annex the Russian uh, east, and then the rest will be a kind of Russian satellite state. Um, you know, Mearsheimer said... Uh, it would have been better if we just tried to let Ukraine just be neutral so that both Russians and Western powers could trade with it. But of course, our greedy elites didn't want that. We just wanted to, you know, we, we just, we want Russia. We want to take down Russia. That's what, that's not what we want. That's what our elites want. And so the Ukrainian people are, are suffering as a result. Um, but yeah, as I said, I, I empathize with the Ukrainians who are dying, you know, and suffering in this war. Um, I empathize and I empathize with genuine Ukrainian nationalists who uh, 
who want to see you know want to see their nation free of Russian control, um, are just fighting from their home for their homeland. But you, I don't think you. It's impossible not to notice the parallels with Ireland. Um, Ukraine is this sort of nation that's been carved out in the last 100 years out of Russia. There's a great degree of mutual intelligibility between Ukrainian and Russian languages. I and mean, of, of course, vast portions of Ukraine speak Russian. Um, so it's 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 difficult not to... And of course, the Ukrainian government, is they're all NATO gangsters and billionaires. And it's very shady stuff going on in the Ukrainian government. But... Um, it's 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 difficult not to get the argument that Ukraine hasn't since definitely since its independence just been used to sort of cut up Russia. Um, it's it's difficult not to see the parallel to Ireland. Like this is, I do question how authentic Ukrainian nationalism is, or Ukrainian nationality is, seeing as it is so close to Russian culture and it's always been a part of that sort of Russian sphere. Similarly with uh, Belarus, I, I'm trying to phrase myself as politely as possible. And obviously, like Ukrainians, several a lot of Ukrainians do care for their homeland, and they do see themselves as separate from Russia, just as many Irish people do. But I'm trying to look, look at everything from a God's eye perspective. I always think that the Slavs are very similar people, more similar than they'd like to admit. Like you get Balkan people who pretend not to understand. Like you get Croatians who pretend not to understand a Serb who tries talking to them just out of bitterness, um, when really there's a lot of, like, Serbo-Croatian is basically one language, you know, and all of, all the Slavic languages are so similar that someone created a constructed language called Inter-Slavic, um, which all Slavic people can understand. Um, they even made a film in that language. So I think there's more similarities between the Slavic peoples than they'd like to admit, and I'm very, um, so I'm very sympathetic to sort of pan-Slavism. I think the Slavs have been sort of the battleground of Europe for so for so long, and they've always been sort of taken advantage of by other empires like the Austro-Hungarians or the Germans um, or the or the Ottomans. Um, and I think they'd be really strong and powerful if they if they united. Um, but it's it seems they'll never get over their sort of ancestral bitternesses um, and rivalries, and they'll always just hate. They'll always just hate some guy from a village sorry my dog's trying to get out of the room they'd always just hate some guy from a village a few miles away from them who speaks a slightly different dialect of Slavic to them they'll always hate that guy with a genocidal seething hatred and so they'll they'll never they'll never be able to unite as a people um so i find that rather sad so i'm i i am i am i am sympathetic to pan slavism um, you know this a great Slavic empire from Prague to Vladivostok. I'm I'm very sympathetic to that ideal, just as I'm sympathetic to pan Arabism and sort of a pan Hispanic state in pan Spanish state in the uh, in in South America and pan Anglo Angloism. You know, I'm very sympathetic to these causes. I'm a, I'm a pan nationalist. I try and look at these things from a God's eye point of view. Um, and I, I see the similarities between these peoples and how I think they'd be much stronger together. And when they're divided, like South America is, um, or like the Arab world is, or like the Slavic world is, or indeed like the Anglo world is, they just become victims of these, you know, either in this case of the Anglo world, it's all these elites 
in the case of uh, the uh, Spanish America, it's uh, the United States, and the same with uh, the same with uh, the Arab world and the Slavic world. Uh, we we're all getting we we're all getting victimized by these uh, these uh, elites um, by the United States, um, and we'd be we'd be much stronger together. And I mean, all nationalist movements were pan-nationalist originally, like. Uh, German nationalism was German pan-nationalism originally, like it was a movement to unite these separate German countries into one stronger nation-state, and that was that made Germany the most powerful nation of the most powerful nation of Europe, which it remains to this day. So you know, I'm very sympathetic. So I'm while I'm sympathetic to you, what I'm trying to say is while I'm sympathetic to Ukrainian nationalists who are fighting for their homeland, I'm also sympathetic to sort of you know, Slavic pan-nationalism to Russian attempts to reunite the Slavic world under their sort of sphere of influence, especially to unite, you know, the Belarusians and the Ukrainians have very little difference with the Russian nation, and they're trying to reunite these people into their folk, you know, and obviously it's, it's difficult for me not to sympathise with that because the very same argument could be made with Ireland, you know, you could argue that Ireland is some... Um, Sorry, that's my dog. You could argue Ireland is like a another kind of American kind of puppet, like just a way to split up the glory of the British Empire, you know. Britons are stronger together, Slavs are stronger together, Arabs are stronger together, uh, Spanish Americans are stronger together. This is my belief. So I, I'm so but you know, it's not for me to say uh what happens to you the Ukraine. Um we'll see how the war plays out. Um, you know, it's it's beyond 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 uh, our hands. Um, but th those are my thoughts, really. So it's it, I think there's a nuance to it. I think just if we're just looking out for our own self-interest as dissident rightists in the West, it's in our interest to sort of uh, celebrate every defeat that our parasite elites suffer. Um, I'm I'm kind of a Russophile, really. Like I. Um, I've I've a, a respect for Russia. I think it's because it is so hated. It's just there's been decades of anti-Russian propaganda now since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, and it's never. It's, I've never. <laughs> I've never. It's never really stuck with me because even as a boy, like I understood the Soviet Union wasn't was done was done. You know, it was finished. So I didn't understand why all this anti-Russian hatred was being pressured on me, and it's just because our elites are just greedy for Russian resources. Um, but yeah, if we if we were just looking at it, pan-Slavism aside, um, Ukrainian national sovereignty aside, you know, all all the all this aside, if we're just looking at it from the point of view of what benefits us as dissident rightists in the West, uh, it's it's that's kind of we we should be celebrating every defeat that uh, that the Western elites suffer. Um, it doesn't mean we have to sort of simp for countries like Russia and China, like I've seen a lot of tankies doing. Um, the, these countries have their own problems, um, but I'm I'm not averse to uh, I'm not averse to making um, difficult alliances, especially especially if we're in a war. Like that's something you have to do in a war. If this is a culture war, then that's something you have to do. NATO doesn't represent me. The EU doesn't represent me. The United States doesn't represent me, and the British state doesn't represent me. <laughs> I 
treat to every arm. So now we'll start with one of the best. She's a lass from Lancashire. She's a lassie from Lancashire. Just a lassie from Lancashire. She's a lassie I love so dear. Oh, so dear. Though she dresses in clogs and shawls, she's the prettiest of them all. None could be fairer or rarer than fairer, my lass from Lancashire. Girls, girls, study a cookery book. If you want man's affections, follow these directions. Cook something tasty and give him the tender part. You must tickle his lips or marry him. You want to reach his heart. Hello, hello, who's your lady friend? Who's the little girlie by your side? I've seen you with a girl or two. so much with prejudice imbued that love and hate arise from latitude. What else can cause such petty strife to breed along the cheviots and flowing tweed? No sober sense could disagreement bring twixt Britons with one country and one king. Beyond the seas the colonies are built alike by men of breeches and of kilt. On fields of war with blood of heroes dyed stand sturdy Scots and Saxons side by side. 
In harmony the martial music comes, from Scottish bagpipes and from English drums. Amid such scenes none stops to boast his birth, as being north or south of Solway Firth. There Fife and Devon, Ayr and Dorset blend, and all for one united land contend. How strange that men so brotherly abroad cannot be brothers on their native sod. Would that each Scot and Saxon might be free from local feuds and childish jealousy, who shall the one above the other place, when both are mixed in one imperial race. Rule on, beloved Britannia, rule the waves, no Britons, north or south, shall ever be slaves. That's a poem by H.P. Lovecraft on the uh, unity of uh, Scots uh, and Englishmen. Um, I think I... It was a very, uh, it's a very that was a very rubbish recitation. Bear in mind that's the first time I've ever really read that poem, um, so I didn't have it memorized. That explain that that explains uh, why the <laughs> recitation was so poor. But give me a break; it's the first time I'm reading it. Um, H. P. Lovecraft was an Anglophilic American um, of old New England stock. He was one of that he was a member of that early America, earlier America, before the mass European immigration of uh, the late nineteenth and twentieth century, um, which divested America of its traditional sort of Anglo-Saxon culture um, and made it just this web of rootless consumers, basically. Uh, Lovecraft was part of that earlier America, the America of the Revolution um, and the Civil War. That was a much of and you know the Pilgrims on the Mayflower. That earlier um, earlier America that was much more in tune with its uh, Britannic heritage, um, even if it even if it ultimately rebelled against it. Um, America was a very Anglo nation, uh, really. I I don't know of of what of any other people apart from the Anglo. That could that would fight a you know a bloody civil war against their own countrymen over the ethics of enslaving another ethnic group. Just no other people on earth are that sort of ethic that sort of ethical and universal and sort of uh, guilt ridden. You know, it's a it's a very Anglo Anglo phenomenon. We're a very introspective people. Um, we're we're very much a guilt culture as opposed to a shame culture. Um, but America remains a very Anglo culture to this day, even if they deny it, and even if it's been obscured by sort of uh, the the waves of sort of um, you know Italian immigration, uh, Jewish and Eastern European immigration, uh, and and so on and so forth that happened in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. Uh, that that really was uh, the fall of America in many respects. But it, as I've as I've gone over in articles like on Saxon liberty, which you can read on the Mallard and. Um, in previous podcasts like Love, Beauty and Horror or uh, my video, The Ancient Order of Albion. Um, that, 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 those waves of European migration really kind of uh, severed um, America from its, from its uh, nationhood, from its traditional identity. But still, I'd say America is still a very Anglo nation, more than it would like to admit. Um, they speak English, you know, for goodness sake. I'd say most Americans probably have more British ancestry than anything else. Um, it's 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 not measured very uh, accurately because obviously Americans have this 
rebellious attitude towards the Brits, you know, um, the entire nation was, they are like some sort of, uh, this, this sort of, uh, this awkward route that has spun off from Britannic civilization. Um, they are kind of in denial. Um, but I'd, I'd still say Americans of British descent are in the majority because most of them just identify as Americans, and that kind of proves it, really, the essential Anglo nature of American culture. Um, and, you know, American uh, British Americans would rather be rebellious and identify as Irish Americans or German Americans and whatever. So it's not very accurately measured, but I'd say most of them are still uh, British Americans. Um, and you can you can tell this very easily by how many of them... I mean, they, they all speak English, and most of them still have Anglo surnames. Anglo surnames are still the most common in most of the United States. Um, surnames like Jones or Smith, you know, or Johnson or whatever, you know. Um, so I this is a topic that consumes me quite a lot. I'm I'm an Anglo pan nationalist. I want to. I think the only way Anglo's can survive as a people is by uh, reiterating our identity. Um, and and realizing our common kinship, um, and H. B. Love H. B. Lovecraft was part of that older America that was closer in tune with its history, with its ancestral Anglo-Saxon identity, and I've I've written about this before and talked about this in my podcasts, um, but it it's a shame that it's not um, it's not a. Uh, it's a shame that I, I sometimes feel like a lone voice in the desert in this regard, and that it, it just—it's very fashionable to hate on the British at the moment, and even in right-wing circles, it's very fashionable to be anglophobic. Um, uh, yeah, I do feel like a lone voice in the desert trying to get this across. It's—I think it's kind of become a bit of a life mission for me to sort of reassert a sort of Anglo identity across the world, because that's the only way we'll survive as a people. That's only the not is not just the way that. Britain will survive. I mean, Britain has suffered such huge brain drain through its colonization projects. It's ridiculous to have to give up all these people that we sent overseas and say they're not British anymore. They're as much, they're as British as I am. An, an American wasp is as British as I am. Same with an Australian or an Anglo-African or an Anglo-New Zealander. Um, but I've, you know, as I said, I've been over this many times before. Um, but yeah, it's just a shame that I seem to be the only one who cares about this issue. Um, and everyone's it's it's it, maybe it's part of that guilt complex and in, in British identity. Everyone's trying to rebel. No one wants to be British. Everyone's rebelling against it. Uh, to think we've we've gone to this from ruling the waves and a hundred years ago. Um, you know when Lovecraft was writing, although the British Empire was beginning to fade, it was a very uh, it was a, it was a mark of pride for an American to say he was of British descent, you know, and that's what Lovecraft was. He was very proud of his Anglo ancestry. Um, but it's it's is is really is re really goes to show you mass immigration has been a problem for a long time in America before they exported it to the rest of the world. It's not even mass immigration, really. It's colonization because the culture is completely transformed. Um, but you know, like it's we take it for granted now, but. The, the 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 I mean, what was if I was an American like H. B. Lovecraft in the early twentieth century, and they there were like Italian American gangsters who were born in Sicily, you know, running about on the streets of the cities that my forefathers built, 
um, causing all sorts of mob violence. I would be horrified. I mean, that's how is that? How is Al Capone different to the Rotherham uh, sex scandal, like with with pa- Pakistani men uh, raping English girls, and that still hasn't been sorted out at all. Um, it's it's the same thing, and we just take it for granted now. Like now, now when we think of Italian Americans, we just think of all these stylish movies by Martin Scorsese. But if you look at it from the perspective of an American in American like Lovecraft in the early twentieth century or the late nineteenth century, it's abysmal. Like it's it's the when has there ever been a time when the elites imported cheap labor? from overseas and it hasn't caused massive crime and social chaos and social disharmony. It's happened it happened a hundred years ago with the Italian Americans starting the mafia in the United States and all the bloodshed that caused. Um and it's going on today with with cases like Rotherham. Like it's the same thing. The mafia was basically the American Rotherham. Um but you know, worse in many respects, because there's so much bloodshed at the hands of sort of American, Italian-American gangsters, and now we just treat it like a joke because it's been mythologized in these movies by Italian-American directors, you know. It's it's ridiculous. Is the same thing going to happen with Rotherham, you know, in, a hundred, in 50 years in Britain? I really do fear that mass immigration to Britain, this colonization of Britain is just going to have the same effect as it did in America. We'll, it will just be... We'll just get used to it, you know, and... 50 years down the line it will just be part of the british story and this is this is what they want this is why they try and fabricate this uh, fake diverse past for britain you know diversity built britain it's so they don't they're already trying to normalize it they're already trying to normalize a social this and mythologized create a narrative around the social disharmony of the next 50 years you know so that when it so when it gets much worse than this um it, there'll be less of a res- there'll be less of a response to get rid of these people from our land, like these uh, Pakistani rapists and whatnot. Um, it's, they're, they're trying to engineer social harmony. Um, they're, trying to, they're trying to make us like, like, and maybe you can say the Sacco and Vanzetti case uh, in America. You, maybe you could say that was like a, another similar kind of psyop, a similar kind of attempt to get Americans used to the idea of all these Italian-American anarchists, all these, uh, you know, Eastern European and Italian-American anarchists and mobsters on their streets, trying to get the American public used to this idea of these aliens in their land, these alien criminals in their land, um, and, and, and accept it. But it's, I just think it's awful. I think it's, it's been happening, so it's been happening in America for such a long time and nothing was done about it. So I really fear the same thing is going to happen in Europe and it'll just be normalized and mythologized and in... 20 years time we'll just have films about uh, Pakistani rape gangs or something. We'll have the the Martin Scorsese of Pakistani rape gangs basically and then we won't be able to imagine a Britain without Pakistani rape gangs just as Americans now can't imagine an America without funny quirky Italian American mobster guys you know. It'll just become part of the culture and I I really do fear that um, because we'll, we'll be much worse off for it just as America has ultimately been much worse off for this uh, Italian-American mass migration, which just brought America bloodshed. It brought America pizza, but also that I don't think that's really been worth all the bloodshed over the past 100 years. Do you? Um, so it's, it's, it's awful, it's cruel, it's evil, um, and I feel no shame 
about expressing my disgust with this this is this this slavery this importation of cheap labor that's all it is it's it's, it's the same fundamental thing as the atlantic slave trade um it's the same fundamental principle um so i i don't so so by that token i don't understand really how dissident writists idolize the confederacy because it seems like you get these rich southern elites importing slave labor it, it doesn't seem it seems pretty much what we've got today <laughs> CF African. My name is uh, Tony. I just wanted to hijack Revo's podcast for a minute to uh, tell you about uh, South Africa, a little bit about my home country, and uh, what goes on in South Africa, the sort of stuff we get up to. Um, so I, I just wanted to make it very clear, I'm not a racist. We haven't been racist in South Africa for a long time. The only kind of racism which is allowed in South Africa these days is against white people, okay? So it's only the good type. Uh, but we haven't had any of that nasty stuff for a while now. Uh, we're all really super chill dudes, um, and uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's what modern South Africa's nice like. It's a very chill place. 
and lots of lovely beaches, lovely girls.